You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, comrades. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR. And uh, before we kick off, I've got a variety of announcements to make to you because there's a whole range of things that you could be doing tomorrow. And... uh, it's important for me to make sure that I actually let you know what those events are before I get on to the program. Or maybe I should tell you what we got, got on the program today. The, uh, the program today is, uh, uh, first up we're going to talk uh, community, uh, Collingwood Community Gardens and uh, perhaps and ask the question, pose the question, has the Collingwood Children's Farm lost its way? Uh, anyway, we're, we're going to follow uh, that uh, string. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, another space that's under threat, public space that make urban landscapes livable under threat, and that's uh, a voice from Save Knock, Lake Knox. Uh, we're going to uh, hear from Andrew Deppner, who's the National President of the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, it's around uh, the uh, situation for uh, manufacturing and a little tidbit from uh, Senator Tim Ayres, who's a New South Wales Labor senator, that uh, gives an, uh, a, a very pithy statement around uh, regional development and a loss of a major industry to America that uh, uh, was based on our um, Australian uh Lithium deposits and uh, Australian brain power. It's all going to toddle off to America. Uh, We're going to follow that up with uh, a report from Emma Hart. Uh, We're going to hear from Ian Brown, a Gomorrah man from Moree and a member of Gamilarai Next Generation, about the fight to stop Santos Narrabri gas project in northwest New South Wales. So uh, before we do um, and get on to uh, some announcements, uh, don't forget that we're in the middle of a subscriber drive. Hi, I'm Jacob from a Friday Rave and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with work and bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. 
Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 9419 8377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. Yes, that's right. Jacob Gritch, the hero. Uh, well, the, some of the things that are going on uh, tomorrow, it's, it's, this is a, a Sunday, the 20th of February series of announcements. One of the very important ones is the Volunteer Day for Socialist Alliance election campaign. That's uh, going to be at 12.30pm. The uh, Socialist Alliance is standing Sue Bolton, the fabulous Sue Bolton, in the seat of Wills, and Felix Stance and Angela Carr in the Senate. And uh, they're going to have um, a candidates meet where you can hear from the candidates and find out how you can get involved in the campaign. There's going to be lunch and drinks available. Lunch will be hala with uh, vegan options available. Um, It's at Harry Atkinson Arts and Crafts Centre, Lake Grove, Coburg Lake Reserve. It's a Facebook event, so you can look it up there and confirm it again. Harry Atkinson Arts and Crafts Centre, Lake Grove, Coburg Lakes Reserve. It's at 12.30pm tomorrow. They'd love to see you there. You can hear what their candidates have to say and you can also sign up to help them out. Also tomorrow, if you want to do some physical jerks, uh Kel, from, uh, who's the director of Melbourne in Motion, it's a parkour and movement co- coaching organisation and they've been uh, given funding by Colin, um, from the City Council, uh, City of Yarra's Council, Precinct Recovery Grant uh, and they're going to do a pop-up event at... <clears throat> Excuse me, Cambridge Street Reserve between Wellington and Smith Street near Language. You may not know that it's called Cambridge Street Reserve, but it is. It's between Wellington and Smith Street near Language, and it starts at ten thirty a.m. and goes to three thirty p.m. And they promise that this is a um, an all ages free workshop shop in uh, fitness, mobility, strength and parkour. And um, it's tailored, as I said, for all ages, all levels of fitness, capacity and confidence. They've got this mobile parkour playground, mobile gym set up. Anyway, sounds pretty fascinating. It's for you, the community in Yarra, and your council's paying for it, and uh, it's between 10.30am to 3.30pm. It certainly sounds like something to nose uh, around and have a look at. Very interesting. The other thing that's happening tomorrow, which is the uh, premiere at the Classic in Alstonwick of a low-budget feature film called Some Happy Day and it's actually quite a fascinating film. It's lovely, nicely put together and it features St Kilda and it features homelessness and uh, it uh, has uh, two characters running parallel, one uh, a homeless woman and her light day experience as well as uh, a social worker who works uh, in um, 
parallel, their two parallel lives uh, over a day. Uh, and as I said, it features uh, St Kilda, all these places that you know, and uh, all these fantastic performances from people. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Will Strike, who's uh, one of who is the uh, one of the uh, assistant uh, secretaries of the Victorian Trades Hall, is in it because she is actually an actor apparently, uh, in a previous life. But she's actually in the film, so it's fascinating, I thought. I was a bit surprised. <laughs> but anyway, it's a fundraiser. It's on at the Classic. It's for the um, Sacred Heart uh, mission in St Kilda. And it's, uh, it starts at 6.30. There's a Q&A. Uh, it, you can go online, Classic, and buy a ticket. It's... Uh, $13.50 or $30 plus booking fee. Um, obviously, you could just go down there. But there are also some other screenings as well. This one's on Sunday, 6.30 with a Q&A. Uh, but there's also uh, some follow-up screenings as well um, on... Um, let's see, which days? I'll find it. Let's see what it says. Um, ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. Monday and uh, Wednesday of that same week. So you can do some follow-up. If you can't go on Sunday, then you can go uh, later in the week. So look at the uh, classic. It's actually worth, really worth seeing. It's a a good film. It's a nicely put together feature with some great acting and, uh, and you know, what can you ask better? It's fantastic to see your local scene uh, represented in a feature. And it's... uh, Got some positive uh, messages, so it's not a a, um, a downer at all. It's quite fascinating. Uh, so that's some happy day. Put it on your calendar. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Now, the uh, Collingwood Children's Farm Management Committee sent in the bulldozers onto the Collingwood Community Garden last week, a move not supported by Yarra Council or the Federal Minister, I meant member Adam Bant, but supported with $860,000 from the state government. The plotters vowed to continue to fight to get their plots back, And the question now is, has the Collingwood Children Farm lost its way? I was down there on Monday and got a background to what the farm did for the local community when it first started, which put a clear face to this question of, has the Collingwood Children's Farm lost its way? Is it bypass the lungs or 
3CR. Oh, very good. Yeah. 3CR. Community radio. That's why we're here. <laughs> I remember doing an interview back with Frank on yeah. 3CR when we were teenagers. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, Frank was so nervous that it was like, so how much does it cost to get in? Frank's gone, $50 a person? <laughs> so thankfully we haven't seen that. Yes, yeah. but I think it was 50 cents a kid back then. And, 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 and was it about the farm? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because this is, that, that was the really the beginning, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Like it, were well, you by a the young time, farmer or just... No, nah, I was just... before the young farmers. I was, <laughs> my, my graffiti is here from 86, still on the barn door. Yeah, it, it's, it's not, I'm still su I'm surprised it's still there. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, of all the things that the farms kept, it, they kept my graffiti. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, no, I, I was in, I grew up in Carlton yeah. and um, single parent, um, no car, no, you know, a real, uh, didn't have access to a lot of things and coming down here was my safe spot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a really big deal, wasn't it, that they uh, decided that there should be some sort of space for people in a very urbanised area. Oh, it was um, it was the biggest gift, the absolute biggest gift, and um, and you learnt to deal with other people because you you had to share the space with you know other kids and um, and it was a time where you could have got into gangs, which you know, and you could have got yourself into a lot of trouble, um, but we were able to come down here and get rid of our energy, learn new things, um, be with adults that um, didn't judge us completely. Uh, like the times that you could access the Yarra and go swimming. And you also learnt to look after the younger kids. I didn't have brothers and sisters, so that learning about different age groups, different generations, um, some people had more than us, others had less, but we're all just getting there and, and get dirty. And people from other countries too, other oh, country backgrounds. Yeah, um, and that, that filtered through slowly um, because of, again, you know, like a lot of the people in Richmond and Collingwood that were new migrants didn't really have much of a um, it took a little bit to get out and about you yeah. know but I remember when um, you know like we first started to get the Vietnamese refugees and some of these kids had been in camps for like five years and so they'd come down here and they'd see a fruit tree and they'd go oh, free food and try and like and and strip the tree and so it was like, now guys, if you look at the ripe one, take two, come back tomorrow. And so we started to get, you know, like all these other kids involved and things like that as well. But like um, this, when we had the work for the riding, which was the precursor to the young farmers, um, we'd, we'd have, you know, like 30, 40 kids and, you know, like there'd be, you know, five to ten in the pig pens and um, you know so all these farm chores would get done and the kids learned you know and, and some of our favorite and then we got a horse ride and quite seriously you'd get a couple of hours work and sometimes like we didn't have that many horses 15 minute ride yeah, that's but what my daughter said you, you spend four hours pulling out and cleaning out the duck pond yeah for <laughs> 20 minutes on the horse she thought it wasn't really <laughs> not a good bargain not a good bargain but, <laughs> But they were taking kids from, it was originally the Collingwood Health um, people, Edith Morgan mm. worked up there and I think Dr Chris O'Neill also worked there. Yep. Now he was a beekeeper 
and he lived over in Elphington, but he put his bees down here and he looked after the bees originally. But they used to see kids that were issues, you know, special needs kids, who they thought would benefit from a farm uh, experience and were referring them down here. So there were kids on the spectrum and there were kids, you know, that were clearly, you know, a half penny short of a pound, but in a farm environment, everyone's equal and they, they sort of work together doing things and, and got a lot out of it. My two daughters, you know, were young farmers here. Tell me about the young farmers. Um, uh, basically it was an environment where you could come down, be with other kids. Um, and that, you know, that was what you were called? Yeah, well, young farmers. Yeah. And, but it, it actually involved a lot of shoveling of shit. Yeah. You know, whether you're cleaning out poultry, ducks, uh, or you, you've got the lambs in, yeah. lambs in a shed because they're young, there's cleaning to be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that sort of maintenance work, even in the, in the fields, rather than having um, horse manure just scattered all over the place where it's going to get fly-blown and things yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. one of the exercises would be to, to, to get the manure and take it over so that it could be used in the compost. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the kids, kids don't appreciate what, what you're actually collecting the manures for, but, you know, that's one of the tasks that they had to do. But the, in 1980, the Collingwood Council created the horse stables yeah. so that we could have a little saddle club. And, and it was to, very fun. And, and, and they had horses <laughs> we got, which were safe. Yeah. Now, one thing is, this is just before the young farmers, but when we had our stables, I got to go to Pony Club. Now, for a city kid with no money, yeah, to up. actually go to Pony Club... At once, it was so good, um, and, and I, you know, like, and then eventually I did get my own horse. Um, uh, but when you think of all the people that I know that have come through, so we've had city kids that have had no animal really near them. We've got riding instructors, um, quite that are full-time riding instructors, quite high level. We've got veterinary surgeons. We've had dairy farmers. We've got agriculturists, permaculturists. Um, so many. So many people have learned skills um, oh, yeah. just by being able to. Yeah. People who were young farmers have gone on to these professions. Professions, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And where, and they, where they else? Here. Yeah, and, and um, you know, like so, it it gave kids that, especially a lot of kids. Like I didn't go. I missed quite a few years of high school. Um, and I decided that learning here was a much better option for me. So I was very lucky that that was that environment. It couldn't happen now. I. I don't, I've not, I've been down a few times. I haven't seen a teenager. I haven't seen a rat bag kid. I haven't seen a kid with flat clothes. If, you, Another you, thing. You, I mean, I'm not trying to say, like, there's a lot. Well, no, no, it's not welcoming. Yeah. So, you know, so. Yeah, well, it's not doing its job. That's, that's the saddest thing where the farm is and has been for a few years now. Um, you know, like, it's all, it's all very nice to use the animals and use the space um, for lovely things but I think too it's got to become more open again to the marginalised in the community you we, know we, we're from an era that when you came down to the farm here it was very non-commercial and with the escarpment around there you could feel as though you were a hundred miles away from Melbourne. Oh, it was quite shockingly you know, fantastic. It was. You know, that gate, you, it, it was this line there. of just... Um, and, and now it's been, it's, 
it's got vibrancy. The big attraction here now is having lunch with mum and dad at the farmer's cafe. Farm cafe. It's shouldn't. curated. It's curated, yeah. But the the other thing, in when we go back to 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 uh, when it was well stocked with animals mm. and you had active young farmers, one of the things the kids learn is is confronting death. Mm. You know, with yep. with lambs and things like and that. And loss. Just and loss. loss. You know, and 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 for small children, it, it it created an opportunity to have those sort of discussions with their their parents. You know about the, you know that their lovely little lamby that they thought they if they nurtured it and patted it and looked after it it would survive. But unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, and and you're confronted with death at at the age of eight or something mm. like that. It's we've we've the farm has actually got quite a few um, grown a few vegetarians as well. By from those kids coming down at that time, we've grown the vegans, um, which is great. Because, but then I have an understanding of where my food comes from. Yes, I have bottle-fed a lamb that we have ended up um, eating. Eating, you know, because that's what happens. Well, as know? they say, but in it's farm, responsibility yeah, we yeah, learn. Yeah, in farm parlance, don't give an animal a name. Yeah. But, well, um, Charlie the pig was supposed to have been put on the trailer, and no, and. We um, managed to keep him off the trailer for four years and now he's happily buried down in his own little right. posse. But, but again, like, you can't... We learnt you couldn't save everything. There's, you know, um, and it's horrible that you can't save everything. But it, at least with the farm you had an idea of um, how to look after things while you had it. You, get, you give the best life possible. Um, yeah. It's an interesting change, isn't it, uh, that a public resource like this has changed its uh, meaning to the community. It's not the same, is it? Well, I, I don't think that the regenerative farming and market gardening it, it has its place, and, and, but it doesn't need to take over the whole paddock. I don't see that as being really stimulating activity for, for kids to come down and look at. We, when I was on the Committee of Management, we did a book launch for working dogs and we had Paul McFay, who's a, a well-known dog trainer and, and breeder, and he came along with his runner ducks and, and he had an experienced Kelpie and a Kelpie pup. And he was showing people and talking to them about training and a dog for herding and just using, you know, a half a dozen runner ducks to show how, how they can uh, train up a puppy and, and how a puppy has basic instincts. The people along the fence were four deep mm. and, and captivated. You're not going to get that with a market garden. You know, artichokes and Brussels sprouts and rows and rows of bok choy or whatever have, are just not appealing. What are they? Uh, is it a commercial enterprise? Well, they, they've got this idea that if they grow vegetables, they can give it to Street or, you know, one of these uh, not-for-profit organisations for dis food distribution. Food not bombs. Food not, yeah, and which is a good thing to do, but, you know, they're missing the point of what the farm was all about, creating a, a, a real rural experience for city kids, you know, and, and, and to... to, to uh, have that sort of space. I think if the target audience is children, you're going from say three to 13 or 14 with the middle age of an eight-year-old. Now an eight-year-old child wants to pat a horse. 
you know, wants to, to, to help with the goats and the, and the lambs and the poultry. But it's not just this. What you were saying, I don't know your name. Oh, Siobhan. Siobhan, what you're saying is that it was a way of learning that wasn't uh, an authority giving you information and yeah. you having to be, be a good girl. The, the life experiences um, are quite amazing. Um, and just going back to something that again happened, on the 40th birthday, um, my friend was invited. I wasn't. Just putting that out there. Thank you. Um, I wasn't either. I was yeah, I know. Isn't what? It lovely. And I've been on the committee of management. You know, hey, my face is on the mural, mate. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I'm milking the cow. You know, I mean, another friend, Andy, who, who had also grown up here, um, we are at the pigs, and um, the pigs, had, it was close to the fence, so I can't help myself. Love my pigs. Yeah, yeah, pigs oh, are oh, scratch, 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 scratch. This woman's coming, oh, you're not to touch the pigs. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, no, actually, it's you're not to feed the pigs. And um, look, no one was around, so I just, you know, like, and especially no kids were around. And so she's watching. So then she starts asking questions. The... So this adult just wanted to know how um, to communicate with a pig. How do I, you know, like, what's the safe, how can I be safe around a pig? How, you know, so do they actually like scratches? But it was this amazing experience that, that she was down the farm to connect, but no one else was helping connect. Now, um, we could make a... a it, it would be quite a, an easy thing to do to, ha, to teach animal skills um, and to invite people to learn more of, of different animals. And adults would love that stuff. It doesn't have to be at, you know, oh, look, there's a chicken well, level. See, we're, we're, we're a little bit past that. I think. Yeah, but the level of uh, alienation is very high. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a pity that we, we can evolve... Um, the farm should still be a learning of how to deal with animals and, and safely, you know it's a, you know, it's always been like a storybook farm, you know, like the old McDonald's farm, it's got a bit of everything so that people could learn about the whole process, sure. you know you can't have, what's the use of having you know, crop rotate or animal rotation if you haven't got the, the amount when, of animals to do rotation. When did you notice that it was changing? Or oh. had changed? Uh, when I was on the committee of management with uh, Alex, we, 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 we turned over to, to, to trying not to be a petting place Zoo, yeah. and, and become a certified farm so that the animals were, you know, tagged and, and they were, you know, it, they, went for, they were part of the food process. We, you know, they weren't given names, a lot of them weren't given names, and the idea was to run them as like a commercial activity and when, when the use-by date, or if they became bitey and not suitable for being around small children, they could be sold at market. And, and uh, so that he started to destock it. Um, when you have an overstocked farm, you have to have lots of people around who really understand a animal husbandry and, and caring for animals and knowing when you have to import food. That's where it becomes quite an expensive activity. To keep a horse is sort of like 20 grand a year. Yeah, yeah, no, very expensive. And, and, and when you have eight, that's a lot of money to run a, a, you know, a, a stable. So um, that's why the farm became a charity, because of the cost of keeping a lot of uh, healthy, happy 
to, to have a happy animal has to be a healthy animal. You know, and, and so when you're sort of keeping animals like that with the, the pigs and everything, it, it requires having people around who actually know what they're doing. And, and this gets imparted to the kids. Like you said, it was economically uh, uh, taxing, but when you look at a, the account, if you were to expand the accounting system to actually take into account the returns to the community that are not financial, uh, you'd get a different understanding of that, wouldn't you? Oh, well, that's right. If, if you looked at all the people who've had an experience with the farm, um, you know, there's a lot of intangible benefits that you couldn't put a monetary um, value on it. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, the, I mean, because you're thinking about it, the, you know, the farm manager might hear, or the CEO would be saying, oh, it's all about money making in order to be uh, viable. But however, the community gardens aren't a drain on the resource at all. And, 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 and the community gardens, a lot of the time, it, it's... The, the, the thing about the community gardens, it's actually just spending... It's like a meditation. You come down here and you have an hour or so of work that you're doing in your little plot, five metres by five metres. You're weeding, you're planting different things. The enjoyment of coming down here and hearing the peacock and hearing the roosters and, and seeing the little butcher bird, you know, visit your site or, or the, the blue tongue lizard. I, I'm really disappointed I've never seen a snake. <laughs> you know, others have, but you know, it, it, and then you're sort of working away and you look up and you realise, oh, there's. Norma Marshall, one of my neighbours, and she's there with the grandchildren, so we have a little chinwag with, the, with the, 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 the people next door. Or James turns up with his little daughter, so I give them, you know, some radishes. Plant these. So she pushes them in the ground, and then two or three weeks later, we're seeing little seedlings come up. And, and, and it's spending time with your kids like that. Or it's not... And, and other people's children. And... and uh, this idea that we're not inclusive is not true. You know, that behind me there was this old Italian who, who's been down here for 30 or 40 years and he was there with his children and his grandchildren. And in the last period, you know, their big concern was Grandad coming up on the Zimmer frame or, or walking sticks up the bike road. You know, this is when we got disenfranchised. The, the, the farm disenfranchised the plots when they took away the entrance to the garden plots here at the end of the bent bridge. This bent bridge was put in to get people safely over the bike road to go to the plots and to the farm. And, and now, see Alex, who didn't like the, 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 the garden plots, because it's the farm plots and, you know, it, it, it's our space. He put that fence down and put the gate right down in the farthest corner. And, and when you're pushing a wheelbarrow up here, yeah. it's hard work. And then, then, they, then they start saying, we, got, we can't take your compost. So when did, I mean, and, and so they see you as the enemy? Yeah, yeah, we've got to take our rubbish away to, to dump it in, in um, green waste bins at home or, or take it to the tip. You know, you, you can't give the, the rubbish over. In the old days, you used to go and put your green waste in with the chooks 
and and then all all over to the well, pigs. Obviously, because it's part of the economy but don't of they the. Have worm farms yeah, but but they won't they won't they they stopped allowing the plotters being a part of the farm composting system. We have to take our rubbish away. That is ridiculous. So it's it even more ridiculous, isn't it? it is. So it's the funny farm. It's a funny farm. And when you see the plans that they did, it's like a Disneyland La La version of market gardening. It looks like every other community garden that's been placed around the place. There is, it's, it's, you know, like... Um, I, I, I can't see the site being usable so, for the wheelchairs because of the gradient. You can't no, put but, paths in because no. it'll just wash into the river. Anyway. Well, certainly mm. people get round on Zimmer frames. Now, for, for six months, I was actually bringing my own lawnmower. Yes, there are paths that have issues, but if I can get a lawnmower around to do that, you can get around on a Zimmer frame. And where you can... Every plot is accessible with a wheelbarrow. And I would suggest that Wherever the wheelbarrow goes, someone in a, in a wheelchair could go. You know, the unevenness of the ground is due to the fact that we have an antiquated water system, and every so often it breaks, and it has to be fixed. And they're not properly dressing the the, the ground, and 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 it's been a long, long time since the farm has actually spent some money on granolitic uh, sands. You know, to, to make a nice hard uh, path. You know, the, the, the maintenance of the paths is really the farm's responsibility. Do you think that the plotters should be a separate entity? Oh, definitely, because if you look at the way other plots work, like Russell Gardens, if you want to be a plotter at Russell Gardens, you go and you go on a waiting list. Yeah. And then it's what It's about happens... having an auspicing organisation. The farm yeah. is your auspicing so, organisation, but yeah, you but need they're, another they're, one. they're neglecting it. Yeah, so, they're, they're so you need another one. Years, yeah. No. The plotters have to be, the garden plots have to be self-managed. So what happens up at Russell, once you, your name gets up to the top of the waiting list, you're invited to come to the farm and you're allocated part of a community plot and you participate in the working bees and you become a member of the group. And then when someone decides, you know, like Siobhan might decide that she can't get there anymore, you know, for lots of reasons, yeah, I'm going to give up my happen. plot. Yeah. Then out of that group of the people who have yeah. already been coming along, a part of the, the, the group there on the community plots, we say, Greg, it's your turn. You can have Siobhan's pot. And it's, it's decided by the, the group. That's the way we want to run the plots. Yarra City Arts presents The Bandwagon, a new pop-up COVID-safe live entertainment venue at Condell Reserve this Sunday, February 20, from 6 to 8pm. Featuring punk rockers The Switches, who at age 13 will be playing their third public show, indie pop artist Ilka, who writes songs instead of getting therapy, and 16-year-old Cooper Jack, producer of indie pop beats. For all Yarra Staycation events, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. G'day, this is Ozzy Butler from Astronomy Class. You're tuned to 3CR on 855am or 3cr.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. 
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to continue on the theme of public spaces that make urban landscapes livable. And we've got Darren Wallace on the phone. He's from Save Lake Knox. G'day. How are you, Darren? Hi, Annie. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Tell us, a, Give us an update. We've been following what's going on out at Lake Knox. Could you give us an update about what's going on and uh, the threat to that environmental space? Yes, thanks. Um, as we've previously talked, there is a move by Development Victoria, who are a state government agency, to bulldoze, bulldoze a lake, um, which is affectionately known as Lake Knox, in Knoxfield in the eastern suburbs. And they are pushing on with this development, which includes housing and some commercial. We're not, uh, as a group, necessarily opposed to that. What we are opposed to is the destruction of the lake and the associated breeding habitat of endangered blue-billed duck species and other wildlife. The um, the local community, uh, I mean, it, it, it's it that lake has become an integral part of people's experience of living in that urban environment, I'd say, you'd have to say, right? Yeah, that's right, because it's along an important bike path network along Blind Creek, and generations of people have experienced riding past this. Mind you, it's behind a wire fence, but from a visual and a many perspective, it's, it's there, it's a pause point for people. People stop with their kids and look at the wildlife on the lake and enjoy the trees that are around it. And you know, over many generations, people have, have learnt and come to appreciate this naturalised system. Tell us about the ducks. Uh, the blue-billed duck, yes. Uh, an endangered species in Victoria. Um, only 18 locations where it's been known to breed, and by good fortune, and to our great delight, for the last two years in succession, they have bred at this location. Possibly for longer, but only formally recorded breeding in the last two years. Uh, this is in the last two years when Development Victoria, the state government agency, said that they're unlikely to breed. So they got that wrong. We're delighted that citizen science played a role in confirming the breeding of these species. And it should be said that they've only bred in 17 other wetlands in Victoria previously. So this is a big deal. So Lake Knox, is is that a, a person-made... Lake? Is it a artificial yes, lake? Originally it is a man-made lake or a person-made lake, <laughs> as we would say, but it, over the 50 or 60 years it's been in place, it's naturalised. It's got a range of flora and fauna now that um, are very hard to replicate. It's, you know, ecologically imbalanced. It has the blue-billed ducks, it has other uh, water birds and waterfowl on it, including also uh, recorded as a vulnerable species of duck called uh, the hardhead. Uh, it has tortoises in the water. It has rare aquatic plants growing in the water and some locally rare plants growing around the outside. So, yeah, look, there's no debate that it was person-made, but there is absolutely a debate of whether or not it can ever be replicated. This is the argument of development, Victoria. They say, you know, we're going to bulldoze it. We're going to build you a new wetland as a community and as an environment. And, you know, it's all good. Nothing to see. Move along. Um, we dispute that vehemently. Yeah, so it was uh, managed by, what was it in uh, Environment Victoria? Uh, it's, a, it's a former DELT site. Um, it's a, a former horticultural institute. It was 
used for water harvesting, for watering crops and vegetation when they used to trial those types of things um, in the past. It's certainly not had any any agricultural use for probably a decade and a half, if not longer. So it's just been left to its own devices and the wildlife to, to do their thing and clearly they are doing their thing with the breeding of the blue-billed duck. Yeah, yeah, it's quite fantastic, isn't it? Um, it, it really, what it is, is uh, it's now being, um, it's a victim of uh, the planning, uh, uh, you know, policies of future planning and future governments or, you know, the present government's fu- uh, future plans, basically, isn't it? Yeah, it's, look, it's, it's a victim of the desperation by, uh, oh, well, the state, the state government of the day to uh, realise assets, I suppose, inverted commas. We, we recognise that this space is very, very valuable. This is the broader space. Um, but, but we absolutely argue that they need to fill in the environmental attribute, which is at the bottom of the site, incidentally. Um, you know, the community is not generally opposed to the development, the housing. There'll be social housing with it. There'll be commercial development. But we are opposed to the destruction of the environmental assets on the site uh, as they stand at the moment. And... Once open space is gone, it's gone forever. You know, as a society, we don't buy back houses or commercial sites and and turn them into open space. When you've got them, you've got to value them. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because somebody was talking to me yesterday about how um, a mate of his was indignant that uh, he couldn't uh, remove a tree that his father had uh, planted that had now grown into full shape because he wanted to extend his house. And uh, I said to him, but the tree's a living being. It's not a piece of furniture. Um, And I actually said, suck it up. (laughs) Good on you, and probably I might say the same thing. You know, we hear a lot of this in in, uh, in the people's paradise of the eastern suburbs, where we are out here in Knox, uh, about, you know, it's my tree, I should be allowed to do what I like with it. I, I take a slightly different approach, and that is that we are custodians of the environment. You know, I appreciate people have title to their property, but I don't think they have title to destruction of imbi- the environment and, and the effect on future generations. Yeah. Okay, so what's uh, what what stage is the battle at? Okay, so the the development application from the, the developers, state the state government, um, has yet to go to council. It's impending. Uh, Knox City Council are currently unsatisfied with the level of detail in the development application, but it is coming soon. So Knox City Council will meet, need to make a determination about what they think of the development, um, the bulldozing of the lake, the associated vegetation removal. Um, who knows where that will go? Uh, what I do know is that there's 22,000 people that have signed a petition uh, opposing the destruction of the lake and who support the concept of saving the lake. Um, there is opportunities this year in the lead-up to the state election to affect a little bit of an influence with both the state government, the opposition, and even the minor parties. And I should say the Animal Justice Party and the Greens are people that we're particularly keen to speak with because... Um, out here, they've played a significant role in, in determining who's elected to various seats locally and, and obviously the Animal Justice Party uh, have concerns about the loss of habitat for endangered species and I suspect the Greens would too. Mm. Thanks very much for talking to us today. This is a really important issue. Thanks so much, Annie. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. 
I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand You could never understand Feel the fortune flowing You know it isn't stuck Yeah, and uh, take Kim Salmon's advice and uh, ring up during business hours and uh, people will be happy to take your resubscription or uh, your new subscription. Of course, there's different uh, rates uh, that you can s- subscribe at. There's $35 for uh, people who are on limited means, people who uh, get, want a full subscription and are working, $75. There's also uh, business um and solidarity uh, prices as well, uh, which is a little bit more. I think it's one hundred and fifty dollars, and you know this is pretty cheap for a for a, a full community voice for a whole year. You know, <laughs> so uh, it'd be really nice if you uh, got on board. We'd love to have you. Um, moving right along on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, we're going to hear from Andrew Deppner. He's the uh, uh, National President of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. I I caught up with him because uh, he was talking about uh, the role that uh, manufacturing can play. Um, And, of course, leading up to an an election, this is uh, serious and important business. They're also talking about um, the role that uh, Australia could play in um, electric car manufacturing and uh, what would be required to make this happen. We'll have a little follow-up piece from um, Senator Tim Ayres. Uh, he's uh, a Labor senator. And it was from a uh, a piece from the Chip- Chifley Foundation when they, they were doing a session around uh, regional uh, industry and uh, how that could be uh, reinforced, uh, what policy settings would be required to make uh, it possible to have uh, a kickstart regional uh, industry and development. Anyway, they do dovetail together, so we'll hear what they've got to say. Now, we had announcements uh, early on in COVID with the uh, uh, Prime Minister busily uh, talking up uh, Australian manufacturing and the uh, kickstarting, but that hasn't happened really, has it? Uh, well, what we found with the uh, with the Prime Minister's so-called task force was that uh, we uh, we entered into that in a spirit of cooperation. You know, the uh, the times were uh, you know looking fairly grim, and uh, there was a desire to see manufacturing get back on its feet again. We s- swallowed our pride and uh, didn't try and uh, do anything uh, to uh, you know suggest that well they'd closed down the vehicle industry and they'd been doing their level best to manufacturing in this country so we didn't mention any of that um, and uh, we participated in that process uh, and it was uh, and it was quite good for a while uh, but it then uh, after about I think four meetings it became very clear that Nev Power who'd been 
appointed by Scott Morrison to undertake the role of chairing this task force was pretty much just there to make uh, excuses for and to to give government plausible uh, deniability or at least cover uh, for the fact that what they were seeking to do was simply to um, give, an, give the, the uh, LNG industry uh, yet another opportunity to uh, to develop. And uh, what what they did was to simply say that um, a gas pipeline would solve all of our problems. Uh, we said that that was just not sensible, that whilst, uh, you know, we, we want to see uh, LNG uh, as part of the energy mix as a transition to sustainable and renewable power, uh, the fact is that what they were trying to do is to set up a process which would effectively have benefited about 11 companies in Australia, large companies admittedly, um, but the fact is that it really was uh, going to do nothing for the vast bulk of manufacturing. And what we found was that uh, was that this uh, this report was done um, under Nev, Nev Power's chairmanship. Um, the actual mainstream manufacturing uh, report was done too. Um, but just to give you a, 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 a glimpse into the thinking of government and the relative importance that they placed on each of them, for the whole of manufacturing, which employs about 900,000 Australians, uh, there was a 30-page report. But for LNG, uh, the answer to our prayers, supposedly, uh, it was a 50-page report. Uh, but, you know, the bad news is that neither of them were implemented. And so manufacturing, along with a whole range of other uh, industries, has continued to languish under this government. Well, uh, your union and uh, others have pointed out that there is actually huge opportunity for Australia in the electrical vehicle sector. Can you talk to our listeners about this? You know, when we look, for instance, at the possibility that we have of developing an electric vehicle industry, uh, we have uh, we have a lot of politicians saying, oh, lithium deposits, oh, rare earth deposits. And, uh, and of course, the only response that they make is, oh, let's mine it and ship it overseas to be processed. Whereas what we're saying is, if you play your cards right, you can use these lithium deposits to develop our own renewable battery battery resource, rechargeable battery resource, which, of course, is the key to electric vehicles. And given that electric vehicles are... Uh, are able to be produced here, uh, there's no reason why that couldn't be the basis of a whole new industry. So, you know, we are prepared to uh, to work with uh, government, with political parties, with business, and to try and develop and create a new electric vehicle industry in this country. But what it requires is some timely decisions. You know, I mean, Scott Morrison, he loves to turn a problem into a crisis. This is an opportunity to get in front of the wave and actually determine that there is going to be some positive action taken by uh, the Australian government to set up an, a, a, a world-leading electric vehicle industry in this country and which would then in turn build on those industries which come, come with it. And they'd all be renewable. They'd all be uh, able, able to employ um, thousands upon thousands of workers. And it's, some, and it's something in which the technologies that we have in Australia, because we are a good uh, a good adapter of technologies and we try and make, well, so long as the union has a role to play in it, we try to make those technologies as humanly focused and humanly centred as possible. And if we do that, then, we're, then we're, we are more than a chance to have a really strong electric vehicle industry. But, you know, time is of the essence. Uh, within the next couple of years, when 
uh, when a lot of other countries, whether it be Korea, Japan, uh, the United States or, uh, or Germany, when they are producing electric vehicles, what we're saying, we're saying is that you have got the opportunity here to do this and you could probably do it in cooperation with uh, various companies that you haven't scared off. Um, we, we think that there, that there is a great opportunity here for Australia's, uh, Australia's new manufacturing industries to be able to build up a new, uh, a new and high-technology high uh, vehicle manufacturing uh, industry which would be based on the fact that we produce our own batteries. So what are some of the things that would need to be uh, done, do you think, in order to make this possible? Um, well, uh, one thing one thing is that we'd, they'd have to be bold. Uh, they couldn't just simply sit back and say, oh, it's all a bit too much of a problem. Oh, you know, let's read what Milton Friedman had to say back in the 1970s about, uh, about government assistance. Oh, you know, let's, uh, uh, let, let, let's sort of let the market decide. Uh, in fact, that's not the way it works. Uh, if we're going to have elaborately transformed manufacturers in this country, government has to take a strong role in ensuring that there's that there's a, a, a good investment environment, and they also need to be saying well, what are the technologies to be used. And if they cooperate and and consult with workers and their unions, then there are much greater chance to be able to develop those technologies in ways that are commensurate with empowering workers, but also in developing these technologies to transform transform manufacturing and in transforming manufacturing, transforming industry. So they have to, they can and should do those things. They are not really high-cost issues. You know, the billions of dollars that this government has spent propping up, uh, propping up companies through JobKeeper, if we had just a small proportion, or Qantas, or, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the thing is that if, if they were prepared to spend that level of money uh, lining Jerry Harvey's pockets, then the least they could do is actually say, well, we're going to spend some of, some of the, that money or at least a similar amount in developing a, 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 an, an industry which actually has a future, we, believe it or not, we actually have a, we actually have a very very strong robotics uh, industry in Australia. But pretty much they only work overseas, with the exception of the mining industry. Um, and and so places like CSIRO, Flinders University, uh, places like uh, places like QUT in uh, in Queensland, where I'm from, uh, University of Technology in Sydney. Uh, they are all doing world-leading stuff in terms of in terms of the technologies to be used, and there are companies in Australia, whether they be large multinationals like Siemens or or smaller companies like Anchor, which makes tools uh, at, uh, uh, at in Melbourne, um, uh, or, and we've we've had we actually have the know-how here, and but it takes an integrated approach to be able to develop those technologies and develop the people who can use those technologies. Just uh, to uh, put it into some context for people who are working on the ground, uh, two quite obvious things that could happen, that would happen if something like this was backed, was would be long-term strategy for vocational training, which is what young people are, are calling, calling out for. And one way that for this to happen is for, for the government to uh, ensure that there's local procurement laws? Oh, uh, local procurement laws have to be a part of the mix. You know, you can't have a situation where the first port of call for a highly paid consultant is to corral all the usual suspects from overseas who can produce uh, produce things at low cost 
and then uh, and, and then tell people that uh, that it's, it's for the good of the country that we're going to invest all of our money into uh, into overseas produced uh, componentry and uh, and uh, and goods. You know, uh, I mean, unless we have local procurement laws which provide for uh, at least an, an even go, because right now the the, uh, the so-called playing field is strongly weighted against Australian uh, Australian goods. Unless we actually have that legislated, what we end up with is is situations as we as we have at the moment, where they say, oh, they can't uh, import to Australia if they are loss leading or dumping or whatever. Well, that's basically just the the reverse side of uh, of free trade agreements, because what they say in the first place is. Oh, we you know we accept all all of the favourable favourable measures that might uh, contribute to those industries being able to develop in places like South Korea, where uh, effectively uh, there is there is um, significant subsidies or subsidisation of, uh, of of car manufacture, um, and, and what we say is oh we accept we accept that what they're doing is fair and reasonable. Uh, what we need to have instead is a government which doesn't play along with all this comparative advantage garbage and actually pursues good good uh, outcomes for Australian industry and good outcomes for Australian uh, for workers here in Australia. I, I really think that that's a critical part of any mix and procurement laws uh, have to be revamped to ensure that we no longer think that think that oh we have uh, we have a free trade agreement with it, with it, with this country and therefore, they will, of course, uh, compete fairly with us. You know, the end result of that is things like you currently see uh, with China, with, uh, with with Japan, and, and elsewhere, uh, where these where these goods are, are being landed, and people are going, "Oh, you're actually destroying our industries." It, it's like it's like uh, you say, "Well, yes, they are." You know, they're capitalists are doing doing the, the business that you expect capitalists to do, but their government's backing them in. Uh, our our government seems to be wanting to be pure. You know, it's. You, you, you mean you'd like them to go into bat for Australian industry? <laughs> a, a government, a government that's going into bat for Australian workers and Australian industries. I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just before you go, um, this is really uh, uh, a sore point because COVID has really shown that. Um, uh, local manufacturing is a really important aspect to a, a nation's survival, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's not just because we were so flat-footed in producing uh, the vaccine in the first place, uh, or for the fact that we, at the time, at the time when when the pandemic commenced, we weren't even making our own surgical gowns or surgical masks here. And you know, I mean, the good news was that uh, that the comp- there was a company in Shepparton. Which actually started producing surgical masks and and, and other um, you know accoutrements um, to be able to uh, to so, so that we would actually have supplies on hand. But bizarrely, uh, only uh, only twelve or so months later, the federal government said, "Oh, you know, we can we can get these masks for two cents a piece cheaper in China." And and so and so as a result, all of that hard work to to set up and and to produce. Uh, surgical masks suddenly went out the window because the federal government decided that uh, you know they were going they were going to revert to type and uh, and 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 privilege com- so-called competition from overseas above and beyond Australian industry. You know, I mean we ha- we have a uh, we have a, a, a government which makes Alice uh, you know Alice in Wonderland look like uh, look like a documentary. 
it's uh, it's quite a it's quite appalling that uh, that they that they think of the best of all possible worlds. In the meantime, we we pass through the looking glass and we wonder why reality has passed us by because other countries don't see it in the in the same sort of rose-coloured glasses. Oh, let's uh, let's ex- let's uh, um, you know just be a just be a mining country which has got uh, got good resources which can be exploited by other countries and which can be developed uh, developed in other countries so that they can then be sold back to us at an inflated price. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and that was uh, Andrew Deppner from the uh, Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. And we're just going to get a word from Senator, uh, just a short word from Senator Tim Ears. He's a Labor senator from New South Wales. And this was a piece from uh, the Chifley Foundation uh, seminar on uh, regional development, effectively, is what they'd call it. Uh, and uh, it's got a little slice of information around uh, what has actually happened to that company in Queensland that uh, is uh, producing uh, the technology around uh, lithium batteries for electrical cars. And I do think there's a role for, you know, regional uh, regional institutions to get this right. Like, it does make regions stronger. You, you look at an area like the Hunter, um, you know, the legacy of uh, all of that cooperation between unions and government and business in the Hunter is still visible uh, in institutions in the Hunter, you know, 20 or so years after the closure of BHP. Um, and it's and it's uh, has long-lasting benefits, you know. Some of the... Um, some of the engineering and innovation capability that still exists around there is a result of that kind of long-term investment. But it also needs a government that um, that's, you know, getting the economic fundamentals right and driving towards some of these objectives. So just today, the, uh, the uh, President Biden stood up with the CEO of a Brisbane-based um, Australian manufacturing firm and has announced that uh, that firm will be essentially relocating to the United States to make electric vehicle batteries. Um, that's uh, that's five or six hundred jobs. Um, uh, and now you know you've got a government over there that's got the scale and has got the ambition and is making the investment happen. And um, it's again a story about Australian uh, uh, innovation and capability and jobs uh, drifting offshore because the government's just lost the plot. Um, with, with with focusing on this, too busy fighting sort of political battles about um, about climate and energy policy, rather than getting these sort of fundamentals right. So, you know, like a lot of these things, David, I, I think it's sort of about getting it, you know, getting both things right. Um, you know, we have we have lost a lot of that capacity to cooperate um, uh, uh, across business. Uh, and trade unions and government uh, and, and our other big institutions. And, and you know, without rebuilding some of that, uh, without a bit of uh, sort of working together, um, then, you know, it's going to be hard to make some of these other things, uh, you know, to make real progress. Johnson Street Fiesta is back. After a two-year hiatus, we're celebrating Hispanic and Latin American culture with a street party in Fitzroy. Join us on Johnson Street on February 26 and 27 as we eat, sing, and dance our hearts out. To find out more, visit jarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. A 3CR supporter. 
I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're going to go directly to a piece put together by Emma Hart uh, and my one of my colleagues at 3CR, she's from uh, Accent of Women. And uh, that's another one of our great programs. Emma spoke to Ian Brown. He's a Gumaroi man from Moree and a member of the Gumalara Next Generation about the fight to stop Santos Narrabri gas project in northwest New South Wales. The first stage of the project will feature 850 coal seam gas extraction wells drilled down through the Great Artesian Basin within four areas of the Pilliga State Forest. Frightful. Anyway, uh, 3CR broadcaster Emma Hart spoke with Ian last week following a legal hearing about Santos Gas Project on February the seventh. So it's the first part of the chat. My name's Ian Brown. I'm a Gomorrah man from Moree, New South Wales. That's part of the Gamilaray Language Group and I'm also a member of Gamilaray Next Generation, which is a group of young Gomorrah and Gamilaray people who come together around November of two thousand and twenty. It was in response to the approval of Stage 1 of the Narrabri Gas Project. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today, Ian. So for people who might not know, can you tell us about Santos's Narrabri Gas Project? So the Narrabri Gas Project first came to Gomorrah's attention around 11 years ago. The project itself will be looking at occupying space within the Pilliga State Forest, known as the Pilliga to Gomorrah people. As a part of the stage one of that project, they're looking to establish 850 gas wells for extraction. As a part of that process, they'll be extracting gas as well as underground water reserves. Since it's come around, there has been ongoing resistance, not only from mob but other interested parties up in that region. So we've had a lot of support from non-Indigenous allied groups as well as a real staunch resistance from Gomorrah mob themselves. So this fight has been occurring now for 11 years and as I stated at the beginning of this interview, with the inception of G&G, Gamilaray Next Generation, was kind of a response to the approval of Stage 1 of that, that project. So Stage 1 is underway currently, but as a part of that process as well, Santos, has to engage with traditional owners, that being Gomorrah. So they've been in negotiations with our native title applicant body, our group that represents Gomorrah family groups from up in that area. So this has been an ongoing process where they've been really trying to get this project up and running. Before we get into the legal processes around the fight to stop the Narrabri gas project, can you tell us what it's actually looking like on the ground and what is at stake here for Gomorrah people and country over the lifetime of the project? So, so far in the project's development, it's in a stage one. So, uh, as I stated, a part of stage one is the development of 850 gas extraction wells across four mapped out areas within the Pilliga State Forest. 
as a part of stage one development, they actually did cultural surveying throughout the four mapped out areas, proposed areas that they wanted to establish these 850 gas wells. And within those mapped out areas, there was a number of around 90,000 artefacts that was actually discovered within those mapped out areas, as well as sites of significant Fukomoi people. So the cultural impact that this actually had and the cultural relevance that this showed to Gomorrah people was, was actually very great. And this is all publicly available as a part of the IPC, Independent Planning Commission, when they did a look into this Narrabrite gas project itself. As a part of that process, it received, I think, about 60% of their submissions made was actually negative in regards to the project and that people did not actually want it and that the cultural impact that this would have for Gomorrah people would be, like I said, would be very great. Now, going into that cultural, I guess, impact that this project can have on Gomorrah people is that it's actually going to impact the way that we go about our cultural revitalisation process. The Billiga itself was actually seen as somewhat of a traditional supermarket in a way where we had a lot of our resources, a lot of our fauna and fauna that we would utilise for our day-to-day living. You know, we had our food source right there, we had our water source as well within the Billiga, but it also held culture significant as a meeting ground for ceremony, not only for Gomorrah people, but also for neighbouring language groups that surround the boundaries of Gomorrah. So the place itself holds a lot of cultural significance. The project itself actually kind of operates at many different levels kind of thing. So we've got the Narrabrite gas project itself, where it's going to be extracting the gas from the Billiga itself. But we also got the infrastructure that's needed to transport that gas from the Billiga down to the Morrison government's proposed Curry gas-fired power plant. So this isn't just a fight that's going to be impacting Gomorrah land and our traditional lands up in Gomorrah. It's actually going to be a project that spans all across the state. So we're talking about, you know, upwards of at least eight different language groups being affected by the infrastructure needed to get this project up and running. So we've got, you know, not only, I guess, the environmental impact, that we know coal seam gas extraction process, uh, the impact that that has on the environment, but it's also got the environment on our potential to engage with the cultural revitalisation process up in the Billiga and actually, you know, work to getting back a lot that we've lost in relation to our cultural practices, but also our language. And that language and land is crucial. They are not one without the other. So... In regards to what this means for us, but also for, you know, our fauna and flora, our responsibility that we have to our non-human kin that exists within the um, Billiga forest itself is very great. So it is a massive point of contention, especially seeing that we've got the external pressures from government and local government where the Narrabri Local Council is supportive of this project being established because the guarantee of X amount of jobs and X amount of jobs that connect to the project. So we're not only just talking about working on like out there in the gas, in the mapped out areas and working with Santos themselves, but we're also talking about the possibility of contracting for jobs that relate to the maintenance as well. So we're talking about cleaners, we're talking about transport officers in and out, we're talking about ongoing cultural surveillance work. So there is a lot of, like I said, a lot of contention around this particular project and there are groups that are supportive of that and when I say groups I mean non-Indigenous groups 
So we're talking about the local council, we're talking about individual farmers that are on board due to compensation that has been made throughout this process. But for us as Gomorrah people, and I'm not going to say that I speak for all Gomorrah, but I speak from my experience of engaging with other mobs and the fact that everyone that I've engaged with around this proposed gas project up in the Narrabri and, and within the Billy uh, itself, they're actually against it. They're not for it. So there is a massive no coming out of country. And it's not to say that everyone is against the project, but like I said, in relation to the mob that I've engaged with my own family, there there's a massive no coming out of it. But I think as well it's important to highlight what also is at risk and how it does impact other mob is the fact that as a part of this project, it does mean the extraction of water from underground resources. And now, for those who may or may not be aware, the Piliga actually sits on the Great Artesian Basin, which is, I think, one of the largest underground resources within the world. So the basin itself spans from far north Queensland all the way down the east coast. So it's a massive, massive quantity of water and it's actually very significant to myself coming from Moree, where Moree is a township that operates solely on bore water and the treatment of bore water from the Artesian Basin. So we're talking about a process that's extracting water and injecting solution to assist with that process of extracting water and gas. And it has the potential of seeping into the Great Artesian Basin and actually contaminating that water source, which is so valuable to not only Gomorrah, but to many other mobs and non-Indigenous folk as well up and down the East Coast. So there are so many complicated levels to this and the impact that it's going to hold, not only for Gomorrah, but for a lot of nation groups up and down the coast. So it's an enormous project with a staggering scope of impact on people and country. And I think the point you made there around not just sort of the environmental impacts, but the cultural revitalisation work and regaining what was lost is, is a huge one there. I mean, that, that's right. that sort of leads into a question around native title. I understand Santos made an application to extinguish Gomorrah native title in, I think, May last year. Um, so what does this mean and... Where is the legal process at now and what options are there to fight this? So where the process is at at the moment is we did have a hearing where the NTS Corp solicitors represented the Gomorrah people and Santos, of course, had their legal representation there at that tribunal hearing. But it was a hearing for first mention, so kind of providing the evidence that's sitting around this application. So the application itself, it works towards definitely weakening our rights and our ability to make determinations on things that would impact our native title. Given that Gomorrah people are actually going through the process of getting their native title recognised, which has been ongoing, the process itself works towards forcing us into making a determination around this project itself. So I guess the application that they actually lodged, the official application they lodged, was the Future Act determination. So a party can lodge a Future Act determination on an area that might impact on future determinations of native title for a particular language group. So given that we haven't got our native title recognised, we had to engage in this process and an application was lodged back in May last year. Now, as a part of that process, once the initial hearing happens and it's written in the legislation is that there has to be a decision made as soon as possible. I think the time frame for a decision to be made as a part of this determination is actually six to 12 months. Now, given that 
Native Title Corp actually knew about this process back in May last year, and we, not many Gomorrah did, was actually was actually very impactful and very hurtful to a lot of Gomorrah mob. The fact that a lot of mob didn't know that this process was actually occurring within the courts until a couple of weeks ago. And that's kind of where I was at as well with Raymond Redwell and Bo Spiram, is that this is something that we weren't aware of until literally a few weeks ago. So in response to becoming aware of this application that Santos made through the Native Title Tribunal, you know, it was kind of a call to action for, for us to actually stand up and be accounted and to do something. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to an absolutely gripping interview that uh, uh, my fellow broadcaster Emma Hart has done with uh, Gomorrah man and member of Gamilara Next Generation, Ian Brown, uh, speaking here about a future act determination lodged by Santos to try to push through the Narrabri gas project in northwest New South Wales. This is uh, a continuation of their conversation. Now, the part of that, essentially what they are trying to do is force Gomorrah into making a decision around this. And as part of that process, we're going to have to have an all-nations native title meeting where we can actually put this to the table and take a vote on on whether or whether or not we want it up there. And that then, that vote actually goes towards our evidence of whether it's we're in support or we're, whether we're, we're against and I'm just kind of talking in hypotheticals, but as I said before, a lot of the Gomorrah people that I've spoken to, as well as a lot of, uh, I guess, family representatives with part of that native title process, aren't in big favour of this project because of the cultural impact. Yeah, the impact that this would have on Gomorrah people, but also not only just our cultural impact, but also just our standard way of living. The fact that a lot of mobs still utilise our rivers and our creek systems up home to source native proteins as a way of living, as a way of connecting the country. This project will actually be at a massive detriment to Gomorrah people, but also our fauna and flora and our sacred lands that, that by birthright as sovereign Gomorrah people, you know, it was our birthright to care for that country. So we have a responsibility in this process to really stand up and be accounted for, and not only us, but all mobs, non-Indigenous folk as well, who aren't about expanding the fossil fuel industry. So that's where we're at at the moment, whether it is that this application is before the Native Title Tribunal and we're in the process of gathering evidence to go towards our case that we're making um, within that project. And there was a protest action on Monday, the 7th of February. Was it outside the Independent Planning Commission? Could you tell us about that? So the protest was called there because initially that's where the hearing was going to be had in Sydney. But there was a last minute change to where that was going to be heard and it was transferred up to Brisbane. So as a part of that, we just really wanted to make our position clear to, I guess, Santos, but also to the government, but also to the broader public. Now, a lot of Gomorrah Mobile have been campaigning in relation to this for years, but now it's getting to the point where we have to stand up and have to do something. And if we can gather as much um, public support around us wanting Santos to yane off our country, then that goes towards us achieving our goal. And our goal is ultimately to be able to, one, have a, have a legitimate say and veto rights to what occurs on country. We want access to a lot of our traditional lands, and that's a part of the, you know, our lands back process. So 
So it all ties in because essentially, you know, we're 2022 and we're still fighting for land rights, something which was a part of, when I think about the Aboriginal Ten Embassy down in Canberra, a lot of the stuff that they were talking about 50 years ago, like us mob nowadays are still asking for that, especially here on the East Coast. Yeah, so that protest essentially was to make our position very clear to the general public about where we stand, to have a demonstration where we put up and, you know, we'll be accounted for, but also making it known that this isn't just our fight, this is this is everyone's fight. And the fact that we want to move away from extractive industries, especially the fossil fuel industry, and we want to move towards something that's going to be sustainable moving forward. So I guess we're talking about, you know, really making it clear that, one, we don't want Santos or this Narrow Gas project on our country. Two, we would like all mining companies or companies that operate within extractive industries to actually cease their operations and also to move off country. But we also want the right to access and care for our country, you know, and that speaks to employment opportunities, that speaks to sustainable jobs that actually not only work towards creating a better economic outcome for Gomorrah people but also enriching the, the cultural elements and the sense of cultural belonging, the fact that we actually have a responsibility to the country and if we could really partner up a lot of these fights then that's where we want to go. You know, we're talking about getting traditional owners out there in our forests and in our native parks and that and actually working as rangers to really bring our, our lands back to what they once were. And we know it's not going to ever get back to 100%, but it's the process of actually giving us the power back to make our decisions and be self-owned countries about how we see fit to care for country and to engage with this Western society. I mean, it seems in this conversation there's a real tension between using with using the coloniser legal system to protect Gomorrah people and country. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. At the end of the day, my personal views is that native title is a colonial tool and it is a tool that was developed to not serve First Nation people, especially when you take into consideration the requirements of, of native title. You know, the fact that you had to have a continuous and ongoing cultural practice. Now, colonisation as a process actually limited our ability to practice to speak language. So was it really developed to serve the interests of First Nation people? And I don't believe it was because it is still a colonial tool and it is still recognised within the system. But what we're speaking to is actually, you know, I'm talking about just abolishing all of that stuff and I'm really talking about how do we build a really inclusive system that prioritises First Nation sovereignty, you know, especially Gomorrah sovereignty and the fact that we haven't, haven't ceded our sovereignty, how to place that at the forefront. And we're not talking about just land use because it's part of the native title process itself. It gives you the right to have a say about what occurs on that surface level of country. Now, you don't have any right to the minerals that are beneath that, but you have uh, a right to engage in conversation for people who may want to utilise space that are on that surface level. So really the powers that native title give us isn't really great, isn't really substantial and does it serve its purpose and I think it actually is doing exactly what it was meant to do and that to limit our rights within this colonial system. So essentially what it would be about is actually going back to a governance structure, First Nation governance structure, mobs governance structure, each individual language group and actually having the ability to have a say and veto rights over what occurs on your country because at the end of the day native title as well 
whether or whether or not the tribunal agrees with the case that NTF Corp puts forward for the Glomeroy people, the individual who had the last day is to steal the minister. So even if the tribunal did side with Gomorrah's argument, the minister can still come in and say, well, the economic benefits of this project outweigh the cultural impacts that it might have. So really, you know, I'm asking myself and I'm thinking about it critically is, and what everyone should be looking at native title and other colonial systems is, like, does it really serve its purpose? It isn't really, isn't really a democratic process at that or an objective process because if at the end of the day if the tribunal still sides with mob and we still got someone up in government who can still come down and say, no, I'm going to overturn that decision and we're going to go ahead with this project anyway. So it poses a question, do we really have any rights in relation to, to engaging in, in conversations and having substantial impact or decision-making abilities around what occurs on country and in relation to our traditional homeland? What can listeners do to support the fight against Santos's Narrabri gas project? Well, you know, the part of this process of, I guess, collecting evidence as well, I myself would like to have, have a negotiation as a part of that All Nations meeting to say, you know, how do we really capture the discontent that not only Gomorrah people hold in relation to this project, but the wider public that are on country, but also everyone for our country. Because essentially the way that what I see this is that if they get this win as a Narrabri gas project, that opens up the ability for Santos to not only expand within our country, but all up and down the East Coast, wherever there might be gas deposits. So this is kind of, I feel like in a way, the Gomorrah in relation to their resistance within this fight, it's kind of holding back the floodgates in, in a way because we know we've got a federal government who's for fossil fuel industry. We know we've got a state government who's also in support of this industry expanding so how do we really prepare mob for this because if they could come in and they can lodge an application which works towards extinguishing our native title rights in our country nothing's stopping them from doing it to any other mob so i feel like it's about getting you know like do we either once we have that all nation meeting do we try and get a document together or we get all gomorrah signature including Gomorrah mob that might not be engaged with the native title process about going out there and actually getting a real substantive mandate from mob on country about what they think should occur in relation to that process. And then looking wider as well, you know, we're talking about petitions, we're talking about really listening, and we're talking about engaging with different industries that might be contracted as a part of that to really get our case across the line. But... If you're looking to support the cause, it's about getting behind the Gomorrah people. You know, there are multiple different groups on Facebook. If you just type in Gomorrah, um, which is spelled G-O-M-E-R-O-I, or you type in Gamilla Ray, which is G-A-M-I-L-A-R-A-A-Y, Gamilla Ray, then there'll be a number of different groups that come up but we're also talking about you know ringing up native title and expressing these concerns in native title ringing up your local government mp your local representative for state government and sharing your views about this project the impact that it'll have on future generations because it's not just about the here and now it's about what our future's going to look like for first nation mob not only in gomorrah but throughout australia if we keep going down 
this dangerous path of continually investing into the fossil fuel industry when we know, you know, we've got multiple different impacts in relation to the way that the climate is going, the way that land is being occupied. So we're talking about those kind of things, but it's definitely about how do we utilise the strength that we've got and also getting in contact with Gomorrah and asking, what can we do? You know, is there anything as a part of the process? Would you like us to set up a solidarity rally in support of Gomorrah's efforts in defending country up there? So there's multiple different ways that we can really do this, and it's about just keeping your eye out on where this process is going, keeping an eye out on Facebook channels for updates around this, also following Native Title, you know, looking at their updates on their websites around this particular issue. So there's multiple different ways that we can go about it. But definitely if you're not from country, you know, it's just about supporting the local mob and about ringing up your local government electives and really expressing how you feel about this project. So there's multiple different ways that we can support this. But yeah, definitely it's about showing up as well. Showing up is a big part. If we could get the masses down here to really, really show that we don't want this, especially the expansion of fossil fuels, industry within New South Wales and Australia more widely then you know that would go a lot of the way towards uh, achieving our outcome that we hope which is getting these extractive industries off of country. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today Ian especially when you're not feeling well. No worries thank you so much for your time. What an extraordinary interview. That was uh, Emma Hart having a talk with uh, Ian Brown. He's a Gomorrah man from Moree, a member of Gamilara Next Generation. He was uh, telling you that uh, you can help out if you want to know more about it. Uh, G-O-M-E-R-O-I, Gomorrah, and uh, G-A-M-I-L-A-R-A-A-Y. Can you imagine uh, environmental carnage? This is environmental carnage. Uh, drilling into the artesian basin, great artesian basin, so that a multinational company can fill its pockets. This is the actual uh, lifeblood of this country, that artesian basin. Absolutely crazy business we're talking. And, of course, there were all the other elements that uh, Ian was talking about. Uh, outrageous stuff and um, yeah the line in the sand has been drawn it's not it's not business as usual this is about uh, saving uh, our futures Um, coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents but I'll give you a night of uh, what we spoke about today we uh, went down to the uh, we asked the question has the Collingwood Children's Farm lost its way its purpose is it really just a kingdom for social enterprise uh, developments and uh, for paying the salary of a, a handful of people Uh, who like to strut around the place pretending that they're all for community and sustainability, Uh, has it lost its way? Uh, We asked this question and we spoke to people who had been uh, there when the beginning of this uh, project happened and uh, were positively impacted and uh, who are now shaking their heads and asking the, the question, has the Collingwood Farm lost its way? Uh, we went on to find out about another space that's under threat, uh, another public uh, uh, space that uh, makes living in urban environments possible, uh, uh, the uh, Save uh, Lake Knox uh, is coming to a head as well. Uh, we followed that with looking at uh, what's happening in manufacturing 
and uh, with a chat with Andrew Deppner, the National President of the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, followed by a little word from Senator Tim Ayres about a loss of a, an industry to America, our great big pal, our great big pal, America, who's now going to snuffle up our uh, uh, electric car battery industry. Um, because, you know, because... And uh, we followed that up with the very important uh, interview with uh, Ian Brown, uh, a Gomorrah man from Moree, who is alerting everybody to the absolute tragedy of Santos's uh, uh, desire to uh, project the first stage of which will feature 850 coal seam gas extraction wells drilled down through the Great Artesian Basin within four areas of the Pilliga State Forest in New South Wales. Absolutely madness. Anyway, um, we're going to go out with a, a song from the great Nina Simone. Um, it really uh, says it all, actually. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.